me and let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for bringing each one who's here today into this place. We know there are no accidents in your providence. All things are worked according to the counsel of your will. And we pray that whatever purpose you brought each one here for today, may it be accomplished. May your word find its mark in our hearts. May it lead some to saving faith in Jesus Christ. May it build up believers and make them strong with spiritual might in the inner man. We pray for all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, we're in Revelation chapter 21, and we'll get into chapter 22 as well, Lord willing. So if you brought a Bible, you ought to bring a Bible. Turn to Revelation chapter 21, and I'll open it this way. What do you want to know about heaven? Like, now, yeah, you're not supposed to answer, all right? So, but what, what would you like to know about heaven? Like, some of you might be wondering, will there be bacon in heaven? Yes? See, you're all sure of that already, huh? Like nice, thick bacon. Uh-huh. Maybe for some of you, thin, crispy bacon. Will there be bacon? Somebody else says, no, what I really want to know is, will there be cats? And somebody else says, I hope not. Not even sure I want to be there. Personally, I love cats' appearance, uh, so I'd love to see some cats in heaven. Somebody else wants to know, will there be dogs? Well, of course there'll be dogs. Got to be dogs. Actually, the cats, and dog, the cats in heaven will have a dog-like soul, a, a dog-like temperament, but they'll look like a cat, and that'll make them a wonderful animal, right? <laughs> so what do you want to know about heaven? Bacon, cats, dogs, those are not the things you want to know about heaven. Revelation 21 is the Bible's largest premier focused teaching passage on heaven. There's bits and pieces about heaven scattered throughout the Bible, but right here it all comes together, one big chapter, a chunk of the next chapter, and this is the Bible's most concentrated teaching passage on heaven. And in it are not the trivial things like will there be bacon, cats, and dogs. In it are things like the things you really want to know, the things that really matter, the things that really make heaven, heaven. We've seen some of those so far last week and the week before. Let me review them quickly. There I use the R word. Stay with me anyway. Let me review them quickly and we'll jump into some new stuff. Here's what we've seen so far. One, heaven is a new you on a new earth in a new universe, all glorified. A glorified you and a glorified body on a glorified earth and a glorified universe, that's what heaven will be. Secondly, we saw, here's my goofy phrase with all these equal signs in it to try to capture what John is seeing in his vision as one thing morphs into another. But heaven, it turns out, will focus primarily on, under God, focus primarily on God, but under God, it will be about this holy city, which is a new Jerusalem, which is the bride of Christ, which is the wife of the Lamb, which is the church, which is, turns into all the people of God, and all of them glorified and radiant. So in heaven, there's God, of course, and in heaven, there's the people of God, old covenant and new, and they are glorified. That's heaven. And the third thing we saw is that very simply, simple sentence this time, heaven has no bad parts. And by that, I don't really mean like a bad street you might drive in and you go, oh, we're in the wrong street. No, no bad parts. And those bad parts are listed. I don't have this verse put up for you, but where it says in Revelation 21, 4, he will wipe away every tear. That's bad parts. And death shall be no more. That's bad parts. Neither shall there be mourning. That's a bad part. Nor crying. That's a bad part. Nor pain anymore. That's a bad part. For the former things have passed away. One of you spoke with a couple of us up here after the first service. You were weeping. And I pointed out to them, because they had just heard this sermon, that, yeah, this is the bad parts. This will be wiped away. A dear friend of ours that I mentioned to you a week ago in the sermon, she passed away this week. 
I'm leading the funeral on Tuesday of this week. That's the bad parts. There's mourning, there's tears, there's sorrow. Heaven has no bad parts. Does that sound pretty good? Yeah, you want to be in that place. Here's the third thing we saw, and this is a really important one. So important, I'd like to just preach this part all over again, but I won't. And it is that heaven is populated only by conquerors. Now, a conqueror is the Greek verb to conquer is nikao, from which we get Nike. Nike is about winning. It's about conquering. This is about conquerors. Sixteen times in the book of Revelation and six times in the, in the epistle of 1 John. John write both of those. So 22 times John uses this word conquerors, and it's about People who conquer the temptation to leave Christ. People who conquer the temptation to avoid persecution by minimizing their Christian distinctives. People who conquer the temptation to deny Christ and go back to living without Christ. The conquerors are the ones who keep on believing, who keep on following, who keep on repenting, who keep on loving the Lamb. They are the conquerors, and only they in Christ will be in heaven. Heaven is populated only by conquerors. So we've seen that much so far, and now here's what we're going to see next. It's really simple. It is that heaven is huge. Well, actually, what we're going to see is it's not really about how big heaven is, because heaven is, I guess, infinite, right? But it's really how big is that city? And remember, what is the city? It's the people of God, old covenant and new, glorified. And that number, this is what this part's really going to be about, that number is going to be a huge number. Let's see where we get that, Revelation 21, 15, and 16. And John says, and the one who spoke with me, that's an angel, had a measuring rod. Imagine you got your your tape measure or you've got a, a yardstick or something. He had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. Here's what he tells us. The city lies four square. That means its length is the same as its width. We're going to find out soon it's also a cube, and its height is the same. Let's read on. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and its width and its height are equal. So it's 12,000 stadia this way, 12,000 stadia that way, 12,000 stadia that way. It's a perfect cube, 12,000 stadia. Now let's just pause on the cube thing for a minute. It is significant. There are other cubes in the Bible, and this cube is going to relate to those and replace those, in fact. It is going to outdo those. It's going to eclipse those. Where do we find other cubes in the Bible? Who knows? Who knows? What else was made cubically in the Bible? Ah, in the tabernacle in the wilderness, there was a holy place. It was a perfect cube. Ah, in Solomon's temple, and then later in the second temple and its very iterations, various iterations, there was uh, the inner sanctum, there was the Holy of Holies, and it was a perfect cube. And now, once again, we have in the Bible, in heaven, in God's presence, there is a perfect cube. What is this telling us? This is, this is going to be the new dwelling place of God. This is where the Shekinah glory of God will shine. So this is replacing what we had on the earth. We even have a temple in this new covenant era that is made of living stones. And the Spirit of God dwells in us individually, and the Spirit of God dwells in us corporately, and we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But that's going to be replaced. And in in heaven, there's a new holy place, and it is cubic, and it is God's presence and God's Shekinah glory. So heaven's going to be a cube, or rather the people of God in heaven are viewed as a cube. Back to the measurements. When it says that it's going to be 12,000 stadia, other people have done the math for us. 
and that means it will be 1,000. The thing John is seeing is measured to be 1,400 miles wide, 1,400 miles deep, 1,400 miles tall, a perfect cube, 1,400 miles big. The thing he sees is 1,400 miles. Now, just to give you an idea, a comparison for that, I looked it up. Most of Earth's atmosphere, the the gases held near to the Earth by Earth's gravity, are seven miles high. Most of the atmosphere. Now, actually, there's very thin atmosphere that goes out to as far as 62 miles, and there's satellites all over the place out there. But most of our atmosphere is seven miles. This city measures 1,400 miles. So if you, maybe you've seen pictures online, you could Google, don't Google it right now, pay attention, but you can Google it and, and there you'll see the earth and there you'll see this yellow cube sitting on the earth and it's like one fourth or one third as big as the diameter of the earth. It's pretty big. So what's the point here? He does some measuring and he finds out, oh, this is a really big city. It's 1,400 miles, like way beyond earth's atmosphere. So here's the question we have to ask, is this literal? Here's part of what you want to know, and the answer is going to be very important. Is this literal? Are we to understand that in heaven there's going to be a city? Because a lot of people do understand it this way. Bless them. Maybe some of you do. We can have a fight after church. I used to believe it. I've changed. Maybe I can change you. We'll see. But a lot of people believe this is telling us there will be a literal city and it will be 1,400 miles wide and deep and tall. They believe it is literal. But here are some problems. I'll put this up there. Here are some problems with literal measurements. Number one, just keep in mind that the book of Revelation is full of symbolism. Now here I'm really tempted to go back to what was preached at Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, where John gives us all kinds of cues from connecting what he's doing to what Daniel did in the book of Daniel, and he's pointing out to us very clearly and very persuasively that the book he's giving us, the book of Revelation, is going to be full of symbolism where you see one thing and it represents another. Remember my favorite example has been you're told to look for the lion of of the tribe of Judah. When you look, he's a lamb, and the lamb has seven horns. Jesus is not a lion, he's not a lamb, and he does not have seven horns. They all indicate things about him, about his character. They're symbolic. So in the same way, uh, it's very likely that this strange, this ginormous city, there's a good chance it would also be symbolic. Furthermore, here's another problem with literal measurements. It's hard to imagine a city that high, like 1,400 miles. How does that work? Some say, well, that's what the highest spire would be. No, no, it's a cube. It's a great big cube that's 1,400 miles tall. Where do you live in that? Like, is it the penthouse up top and Paul and Elijah and John the Baptist, greatest among women till that day? Well, will they be up there? And then you and me, we'll be like down on the bottom floor and it's kind of junky down there. You know, what's this going to be? How does it work? What are the living arrangements in a city that is built like that. So it's a little hard to imagine. And furthermore, number three, and this one is rather rather uh, hard for the literalist to get past, the walls, he's about to describe them, we're about to read it, the walls are disproportionately small. Let's read it. Revelation 21, 17. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. So you have a city 1,400 miles high, and if you do the math, its walls are 
216 feet. Those are some really teeny walls for a city that is 1,400 miles high. They are disproportionately small, which has led some literalists to say, oh, that must be how thick the walls are. And even some translations put the word thick in there, though the word thick is in no Greek manuscript whatsoever. It's not talking about thickness. And everywhere else here, he's measuring the height, the height, the height, the height. So we're led to believe he's measuring the height of the walls. Furthermore, even if we granted that this is how thick the walls are, 216 feet. That's not very thick for a wall that's 1,400 feet high. Like, I'm no no builder, but I kind of know that isn't going to work. So there's something wrong with this wall that leads us to believe maybe it's not literal. So let me, let me look at, at these three things we've seen so far about this wall. The book Revelation is full of symbolism. It's hard to imagine a city that high. The walls are disproportionately small. But now here's the real formidable and the real insurmountable problem with the literal interpretation. Remember what the cube is. Remember what the city is. Remember all my ridiculous equal signs to try to describe what John is saying. Here's what it is. The city is a holy city, which is a new Jerusalem, which is the bride of Christ, which is the wife of the Lamb, which is the church, which turns out to be all the people of God from the Old Testament and the New, now glorified and radiant, and that's what we're measuring. They're not actually a physical city. It's people. What John is measuring, or rather what the angel is measuring, is how many people will be in heaven. How big is the population of the people in heaven? Let's measure this cube, which is the bride, the wife of the Lamb, the church of the Lord Jesus, all the people of God, old covenant and new, glorified and radiant. So the question is, how many people will be there? This was a very important question for those first century Christians who received this book. Because they lived in the most massive and powerful empire on the planet, the Roman Empire, which had spread. It was ginormous, and they were a teeny little band. They were just the beginning of the New Covenant Church, and they were so few and being persecuted so fiercely and being put to death and economically persecuted and being imprisoned and chained and so on, and they were considered by many to be the off-scouring of the earth. Like if you wash the junk off of a pan, that's us. We're the off-scouring, Paul said. We're considered the off-scouring. So it's important to remember that what looks so small then, these people were taught, no, actually, by the time this gets to heaven— It's going to be huge. It's going to be ginormous. Jesus Christ shed his blood to redeem not a little church that's only made of like a few of you all and the rest of you aren't really even saved and there's no one else saved on the planet. We're the only real church. Not that. It's, It's going to be a huge number. This fits with God's promise to our father Abraham. What did God say to Abraham? Your seed in Christ is going to be like what? like the stars in the heavens, like the sand on the seashore. What are they measuring? How many will be there? It's huge. Elsewhere in the book of Revelation we read, it will be a great number that no man can count. No man can number. What's he teaching us here? This city, this cube, which turns out to be the people of God coming down from heaven to the earth is going to be ginormous. 
You won't get to heaven. It'll just be like you, your husband, a couple other people you know. It'll be hard to find people in heaven. It's just vast space, but hardly anybody there. No, you're going to get there, and it's going to be crowded. There's going to be a multitude of worshipers in heaven. And that's what he's showing us by this. Next, moving on, and it builds. The next important thing we learn is not only is heaven's population going to be huge, but heaven's temple is God. Heaven's temple is God. Now, that's odd wording, but it's necessary. Heaven's temple is God. Let's read the verse, Revelation 21, 22. And I saw no temple in the city. Now, this would have been shocking for first century Jewish people because they were temple-focused. First they had their tabernacle, then they had Solomon's temple, then they had the second temple, then they had different iterations of the second temple. It took them 90 years, 100 years to deal with all those, building it and then rebuilding it and changing it. And in AD, what was it, AD 70, Titus and his people came and sacked it, raised it with a Z to the ground. And God basically said, oh, I see you have a beautiful building you built there. Took you 100 years to build it. Guess what? I don't need it anymore because I have a new temple made of living stones. It's called the Church of Jesus Christ. So John says, I saw no temple. They'd be like shocked. Really? Like, there's not going to be a temple? Why not? For its temple is, its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. By the way, from here on out, and it's already been building, we get again and again and again, the Lord God and the Lamb, the Lord God and the Lamb, the Lord God. Pretty soon in this sermon, you're going to see that on the throne is the Lord God and the Lamb. They're both on the throne. They're both empowered. They're both God, God the Father and God the Son. But there's no temple, for the temple is God the Lord God Almighty, and the Lamb. So heaven's temple is God, which isn't what you would expect it to say. You would expect it to say, heaven is God's temple. Heaven would be God's temple. That's not it. Heaven's temple is God. Do you see the difference? On the one hand, there's heaven is God's temple. That would be amazing compared to the tabernacle, compared to Solomon's, compared to uh, the, the second temple. That would be amazing compared to pagan temples. But there's going to be a dramatic change, and it won't just be that heaven is God's temple. It's, it will be that heaven's temple is God. What does that mean? God and the Lamb are heaven's temple. What does that mean? Well, I'm not sure. Here are some possibilities. Number one, it certainly means this. In heaven, you don't have to go anywhere to worship. Right where you are, that's where you worship. You all went somewhere to worship today, didn't you? You all who are on, with us online, you should go somewhere to worship. You should come join us or go to your church. But you all got dressed, got in your car, your truck, and you drove here. You had to go somewhere to gather with God's people in worship. And what this is telling us is, no longer in heaven. Every place is hallowed ground. Every place is sacred. Every place is God who is the temple in that place. You're with God everywhere, and he is now the temple. And in heaven, this is also telling us, your whole existence will be one of worship. Everywhere you go and everything you do, part of what's going on there is you're worshiping. Oh, that we could live that way now, right? Oh, that I would worship more throughout my day. Oh, that when I worship, I wouldn't be so distracted. Oh, that when I worship, it, I would feel it more deeply and it would mean more to me. Then you shall. 
Everything will be about worship. Everywhere will be worship because God will be heaven's temple. Interesting, by the way, three Old Testament prophets foretold a day when there would be no more temple, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Jeremiah. I'll show you Jeremiah's version. Here it is from Jeremiah chapter 3. They shall no more say, in the day he's prophesying, they shall no more say, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. No, they won't say that anymore because it's gone. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or even missed. It shall not be made again. So Jeremiah tells us there's going to come a day when it's not about the Ark of the Covenant. It's not about a physical temple anymore. When's that day? John is showing us that day. In heaven, we'll realize that day. That prophecy will be fulfilled in heaven. Now it builds. Here's the next thing I want you to see about heaven from Revelation chapter 21. It's this. And heaven is illuminated by God's glory. Heaven is illuminated by God's glory. Notice how it's put, Revelation 21, 10 and 11. He showed me, that angel speaking with him while John's having the vision, he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. We saw this verse last week. Having, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel. So that's the people of God. That's you in Christ. We will have the glory of God. And our radiance will be like a most rare jewel. We saw that last week. But there's more we're seeing this week. Revelation 21, 23. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it. Now notice, please, the verse does not say there will be no sun or moon. It says the city has no need of sun or moon. There might be a sun or moon. You just don't need it. Or maybe there won't be a sun or moon. How many think there will be a sun or moon? How many don't think you... It doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter because that's not the point. The point is, whether there's a sun or not, everything is illuminated by the glory of God. For the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. There again, you have God and the Lamb, God and the Lamb, light and lamp. By its light, will all the people there who are gathered from all the nations under heaven, they'll all walk in that heavenly place by the light of God and by the light of the Lamb. Again, in chapter 22, verse 5, peeking ahead, we read, and night will be no more. How about that? I had a rough night last night. You know what it was? I, this rarely happens to me. I just wasn't thinking, and I drank a lot of caffeine yesterday. And man, did I ever pay. I was awake for the better part of the night. At two something, I finally just said, all right, I'm getting up. And I stayed up, and I read, and I watched somebody preaching, and I listened to some podcasts and stuff. Finally, at 6, I lay down, and that lasted for about an hour, and then I got up again. And, I, man, I had so much caffeine, I might stay up tonight too. I don't know. We'll see. But, but one thing I noticed was it's a long night when you're sitting in the chair in your, in your little uh, dining table in, in the breakfast nook. And I was thinking about this and the light and the night and night will be no more. You're never going to sit up with insomnia again. You're never going to sit in darkness again. You're never going to have to go somewhere in darkness again. Why not? You won't need a lamp. We don't light lamps unless the power goes out. We have light switches. Same thing. You won't need some little source of light that you can take with you to go places. Why not? For the Lord God will be their light. Imagine that. There's this brightness. Kind of reminds you of, don't get too fascinated by this because there might not be a real connection here. Kind of reminds you of Genesis chapter 1. What happened on day 1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he said, let there be 
light. On what day does he create the luminaries, the sun and the moon and the stars? What day? Day four. So you have day one, day two, day three. There's light, but there's no luminaries. What's the light? Maybe this same light. God, God can create light without a light source, without a sun, without a, no problem for God. That's easy. In fact, we know he had to do that. No, nah, never mind. I'm getting off in too much. So anyway, here's what we see. Night will be no more. Here's what we're supposed to understand. All of heaven is intensely illuminated by the glory of God. So we'll be there. We're that, that big, goofy, long sentence I put together with all the equal signs. And we'll be there having the glory of God. And we'll be there radiant like a most rare jewel. But also, the whole place is intensely illuminated by the glory of God, filled with the glory of God. God's glorious presence will completely fill the new cosmos and completely fill the new city. Unlike right now. Right now. So we get glimpses of the glory of God. What are some of the very best glimpses available to us? Well, Psalm 19 probably tells us, the heavens declare the glory of God. Look up if you want to see that. You see this amazing sky some night, this amazing sunset. You go up in the high desert of California. I've been there, and there are stars, unbelievable stars. And the kids in the back of the car looking at the back of the station wagon saw them while we were headed up to Lake Tahoe in the middle of the night. One of them, one of them sitting right there in his 40s now. And, and they said, whoa, look at that. We all pulled over the wagon and got out and stood there and just looked, and our jaws are dropped. Wow, the Milky Way. I wish we could see that around here, huh? That declares the glory of God and lots of other things about life on the planet. Give us little declarations here and there of the glory of God. Not then. The entire place will be illuminated with the most powerful presence, the most powerful display of the glory of God ever. You might imagine it this way. If it's the 4th of July and you have a little sparkler, and then down in D.C. they put it on the most ginormous show of fireworks, what we're seeing of the glory right now is the little sparkler. What we'll see then is the fireworks forever and ever and ever and ever. And if there are stars, the brightest, most glorified star, the brightest, most glorified sun will be totally eclipsed by the glory of God in the people of God and the whole place filled with the glory of God. So what are we learning about heaven? Glory is written all over that place and all over the people who inhabit that place. It's just going to be amazing. The Greek word for glory is doxa. I don't know why I told you that. I love the word doxa. It's going to be doxa everywhere. It's going to be glory everywhere. Here's another verse we can look at, Revelation 21, 24 to 26. By its light, the nations will, the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. What does that mean, they'll bring their glory? They'll come in and say, glorify God and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there, and they will bring into it the glory and the honor to God of the nations. They'll all, everybody in that place comes to God and honors Him and glorifies. doesn't mean there's a real city and you have to travel and go there if you're because God is the temple. You worship Him anywhere, but it's about glory. Let's go on to the next thing. In heaven, maybe this is my favorite one in today's sermon. 
in heaven, eternal life flows, ever flows, abundantly flows into our souls. Now we're in chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. Let's look at it. Then the angel, same one that's been talking with John while he's seeing his vision. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. And it was bright as crystal, like everything in that place. And what was its origin? What was its source? It was flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. There it is again. Now it's the throne of God and of the Lamb. They're both on the throne. And this, this river of the water of life is flowing from that throne and from the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. So now there's one street, but maybe there's streets that go everywhere and it's one big. But in every street, there's a river flowing in the middle. Now we have a river around here, right? We have a big river around here. What's it called? Come on, what is it? Yeah, the Susquehanna. I mean, I'm, this is not talking about the Monocacy River 10 feet wide. This is a river flowing in the middle of the street. What street? What street mean? Everywhere you go, wherever you go, you're with this river. And all your being in heaven, you're never away from this river. You're always being serviced. You're always being fed by this river. And what does the river portray? I think the best answer to that is it portrays, it is symbolic for the eternal life that ever flows from God into your soul. Everywhere you go, you'll be fed by that. You'll be nourished by that. You'll be kept by that. And among other things, this answers the question, how come I'll never sin in heaven? I mean, what changes? What, what, what does that? Here's what does that. God does that. He will lock you in grace. He will nourish your soul so with grace that you will never choose sin. You will never desire. In the same way that all the angels who did not fall, the holy angels, why have they never fallen? It's not something about them. It's something about God. God in his grace has locked them in grace. It's like back in, is it Star Wars or Star Trek, where there was a tractor beam? I'm getting all kinds of answers, y'all. So, all right, it's one of those star somethings. And your ship could put this tractor beam on the other ship, and then they couldn't move. It would just hold them right there. And God puts a tractor beam of grace on you and on your soul, and he fixes you in grace, and he fixes you in holiness, and he never allows you to succumb to a temptation. And temptations aren't even allowed in that place. So God tractor beams you by his grace. Now we're going to change back to the metaphor we're supposed to be in. He sends you a river. Everywhere you go, the river's there. You're drinking in life that flows from God and the Lamb who sit on the throne. The life of God comes into your soul, and you are kept holy. You are kept loving the Lamb. You are kept following the Savior forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And there's more on this theme. Revelation 22, 2b, also, it says, on either side of the river. So you got a street with a river in the middle of it. Now on either side of the river, I guess this side of the street, it says, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. It is a tree of life. So there's a river of the water of life, and there's a tree of life. What are they both doing? They're nourishing you with the grace of God. They're feeding you. They're sustaining you on the life of God. You might think of it this way. It's like 
You ever had an IV? Sure, you had an IV in your arm, right? What are they doing? They're feeding you from a bag that's hanging there with some kind of nourishment that your body needs. This is going to be your spiritual IV forever. Everywhere you go in heaven, the water of God, God's grace flows into your soul. And the nourishment from the tree of life is available to you, and you partake, and you're fed and nourished in the things of God. What are we supposed to understand from this about heaven? God will sustain you in holiness and in eternal life. That's what this is. God gives all the inhabitants of heaven eternal life. Life flows from God into our souls. When you go down the street, you're wading in the waters. You're feasting on the trees. God is refreshing our souls, nourishing our souls, feeding our souls. Can't wait, right? Wouldn't you love to have that now? To live in that now? To bask in that now? You'll have it then. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Now I've got, I think it's one, two, three, four more things I want to share with you, and intentionally, it's not because I'm out of time, because I'm not, uh, I just want to run through these kind of quickly. Here's four more things about heaven, and then we're going to, we'll come to a close. Four more things. First, heaven is pure. Here's the verse, Revelation 22, 3, no longer will there be anything, no longer will there be anything that is accursed. How good is that? How many things are accursed right now? Pretty much everything. We're back in Genesis chapter 3 again. Because you fell, cursed is the ground because of you. The curse falls on the man. The curse falls on the woman. The curse falls on the devil. The first curse falls on the universe. This is when the curse is lifted. And no longer will there be any traces of that fall or that curse. That's pretty good. Heaven is pure. And Furthermore, heaven is worship. Look what it says in Revelation 22, 3. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. If you don't love worship, you won't like heaven. If you don't love worship, it's probably because you don't really love the Lamb. If you don't love worship, you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Everybody in heaven will love worship. And a whole lot of what we'll do is this. His servants will worship him. You wake up in heaven if you sleep. You wake up in heaven and you say to the girl that used to be your wife but isn't anymore, but you still know who she is. I'm going to blow her kisses. Cross the group, going to wink at her. And you say to her, what are we going to do today, former babe? And she says, same thing we do every day, former husband. Worship God. It's going to be worship. Heaven is going to be worship. His servants, that's us, will worship him. Remember, we're not talking about will there be cats, will there be dogs, will there be bacon. These are the big things. These are the things that really matter. What goes on in heaven? Worship. Lots of soul-nourishing, exciting, everlasting worship. Heaven is worship. Let's go on. And it's not just dull or dry external worship, but here's the next point. Heaven is intimacy with God. It's intimacy with God. You finally get to be near where you want to be. You get to be near him. Here's the verse, Revelation 22:4. They will see his face, 
and his name will be on their foreheads. Remember, we've seen that already in the book. I don't think this literally means we're all going to have God written on our foreheads forever and ever. This is a vision. John is seeing things that symbolize other things. What does it mean? They will belong to God. Just like if my wife's wandering out of the building still somewhere today. She's working on the coffee for when this service ends or something because she was in the early service. But suppose I got a black magic marker, the kind you can't erase. And suppose I wrote on her forehead, Steve's. What does that say? That says, don't you mess with that woman. Don't you hurt that woman. Don't you try to get that woman to be your woman. That's my woman. That's what it means that you'll have the name of God written on your forehead. You will be God's. You will belong to him. You will be intimate with him. You'll see his face, the face of the lamb. Now here's the last thing we're going to look at today. Revelation 22.5, and heaven is reigning. Heaven is reigning. Here's the verse 22.5, and they will reign forever and ever. You hear Handel's Messiah in the background. Play some Handel's Messiah. Forever. They will reign Ah, oh, this meant so much to those poor, persecuted, first-century Christians. Rome was reigning. And Rome was stomping its big foot down on the little beanie group of Christians. And they were getting creamed. And it was painful. And they're crying out from under the altar, How long, Lord, till you avenge us, our deaths? Well, guess what happens to the martyr? No sooner are they stomped by Rome then they appear at the right hand of the majesty on high, near the Lamb, reigning with him. Remember, back in the throne room of chapters 4 and 5, around God's throne, there were 24 thrones and 24 elders on them. And we said those represent all the old covenant true believers, the 12 tribes of Israel, and all the new covenant people, the 12 apostles. And we're represented by those. That means we're there. We're reigning too. We're on those thrones as well, and they will reign with him forever and ever. Over what? Well, not each other, not over him, not over angels. What will they reign over? A new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Three quick closing thoughts. Number one, you want to be in heaven. You want to, all right? I'm just telling you, you want to be there. You want to be in heaven. Here's the second thing. And you can be in heaven. You can be. That's good news. You ever driving along and you see an amazing house? Happens to me all the time. We're out riding somewhere. Oh, look at that place. I could stay and live in there. It's never going to be. It's never going to happen. I can't be in that house. But I can be and you can be in heaven. The gift of God. The gift of, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's free. Purchased for you by the blood of the Lamb. You can be in heaven. And thirdly, to all you who expect to be, then, then you should live like one who waits for heaven. Remember what Peter said, knowing that all these things are thus to be, thus to perish. What manner of persons ought you to be in holiness and righteousness waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? You should live like one who waits for heaven. Tap you on the shoulder after church. What are you doing? Waiting. 
What are you waiting for? Jesus. Tap you on the shoulder. What are you doing? Waiting. What are you doing? Waiting. We're all waiting. Waiting for Jesus Christ. You want to be in heaven. You can be in heaven. You ought to live like one who waits for heaven. Let's pray about it together. Father in heaven, we pray that every person in this room, every person who hears this message, and for that matter, every person on the planet, that they would hear of the grace of God found in Jesus Christ, and they would turn in their souls to you that you would be their God, and they would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Father, there are probably people in this room who need to be saved. Please, we pray, would you draw them by your word and by your Holy Spirit? Would you draw them to the cross of Jesus? And may they there bow the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord, their Lord. Confess it to the glory of God. Father, many of us have so turned to the Lord Jesus. Give us such grace that we'll be found conquerors still in Christ, still abiding, still remaining, still overcoming, still following, still repenting, still believing. Father, that's how we want to be found at the last day in Christ. Give us grace, we pray. May the waters of life nourish our souls sufficiently now that we would keep on following Christ. Thank you that we can come to the table of communion now, nourish our souls as we remember Jesus Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just before Pastor Stan leads us in communion, I want to say we're here to help you. There's a Connect card in the chair in front of you in the room. There's a Connect card in the video description if you're online with us. And you can connect with us and tell us, I need spiritual help. Help me know Christ. Help me grow in Christ. Help me with something I'm struggling with. We'd love to help you. But we don't know about it till you tell us about it. So please let us in. We're here to serve you. Thank you. Pastor Stan. Thank you, Steve. Are you ready for heaven? I didn't hear anything. (laughs) Amen. Amen. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ instituted the Lord's Supper for his people. So if you are a true follower of Jesus Christ, we welcome you to join us at the table of communion. And today I want us to consider Psalm 103 as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper. The psalmist writes in verse 10, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Psalmist goes on to say, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And this is what communion is about. The Lord Jesus Christ coming to this earth, giving his life in order that we might be set free from the bondage of sin and made right before God. And that's what we are to meditate as we partake of the bread and the cup. Christ's broken body, his shed blood, that our sins might be forgiven. On the night that the Lord Jesus Christ was betrayed, 
He told his disciples that this bread represents his body, which was broken for them, and we are to do it in remembrance of him. In the same way, the Lord Jesus Christ told his disciples that the wine represented his blood shed for the forgiveness of sin. His blood is the blood of the new covenant. And he said, do this as often as you do in remembrance of me. So we rejoice in what Christ has done. And now we will stand and sing one last song in praise to our God. So let's stand and lift voices in praise.